Introducing From the Glove Box, an automotive podcast with Mike and Tony Tavage, the father-son team and owners of Team T Automotive in Northern Indiana. On today's episode, we talk about the best-looking cars, buying your first car, and brakes and calipers. All right, another episode from the Glove Box with uh, father and son, uh, Mike and Tony Tadich. I'm Mike. Tony's my son. We are automotive shop owners in uh, in northern Indiana. Been at uh, been in that a long time. So, um, that's uh, uh, way almost almost forty years for me. But uh, anyhow, uh, but we're automotive shop owners. We bring you this podcast. Talk about uh, just some different fun things about cars, maybe talk about some general maintenance, take a call or two from uh, somebody out there and stuff. But uh, we always like to open up with uh, with a subject of, of uh, talking about different cars. So we've talked about our favorite cars, our, you know, some of the cars that were not so good. We've talked about favorite drag race cars, movie cars. This, uh, this episode, we're going to chat about the best-looking car. Let's talk about be- best-looking cars. You know, maybe somewhat modern, I guess. Uh, it doesn't matter too much, but uh, yeah, we can go any bo- anywhere, Tony. Uh, we hey, one thing about this uh, podcast, there is no script, so it just kind of comes from the heart. We are uh, automotive guys uh, that uh, love automobiles and uh, enjoy what we do. But uh, what do you think about best looking car? What what comes to mind for you? I had a Matchbox car and a poster of one it was red in color it was produced from 1987 to 1992 what is it 87 to 92 matchbox hot wheels is the better well again we'll get on brands on that but uh, um and a poster and the car was red ferrari yep okay just, what model uh Hell, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Ferrari F40. Ferrari F40. So, so why that? Why was that uh, from your childhood such a such a special cool car? What poster was? What what was the? Uh, it was just it? the poster of the car. Oh wow. Okay. So, I think we got it at the uh, uh, what they call that thing at the cavalcade of wheels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had. There was always a local car show around uh, where we lived called the Cavalcade of Wheels. It was uh, in held, the Joy Center in it, Notre Dame, held on a campus in Notre Dame. I think it's uh, switched maybe, but that that was always a cool, uh, cool car show. We could go see all sorts of uh, new custom or mainly custom cars and stuff like that. But yeah, probably was that. So you know, for the age of, uh, person that I am and stuff, in in male, it, the red Ferrari was always just something that you aspire to get to. That's what you saw Michael Jordan drive. That's what you saw any famous sports superstar drive, either a Ferrari or a Porsche. Uh, and, you know, that car was just cool. Now, that car modern days at Barrett Jackson and Meekum and places like that is going for astronomical numbers. Um, at this point in time, you have people like the uh, infamous uh, Richard Rawlings from Gas Monkey Garage that restored a wrecked one and was the first person to paint one another color besides red because the Ferrari F40, I believe you could only get the F40 model in red. Um, you could not get it in any other color. And Richard Rawlings restored one and painted it black. And oh, wow. Pissed a lot of people off. So Well, there was a there was an old TV show, Magnum P.I., that uh, a guy drove 
drove around a red uh, Ferrari for sure. So, um, so that was, uh, quite interesting, you know, for me, um, I mean, we obviously go to sports cars as being pretty cool, but I also want to maybe pivot off of that. I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, the here, here in the last few years, we've had a lot of retro looking cars for, you know, so Dodge has come out with their whole lines of, you know, chargers and uh, Hemis and all that cool stuff. And Mustangs have come out with, uh, you know, Ford has come out with different ones of those that have been really cool. And of course, Chevy's done the same thing. I, I off, you know, really think the, the new, the brand new style Corvette is really cool. When we go to uh, the mid engine, mid engine one. Yeah. So Tony and I go to uh, some meetings uh, several times a year and we go through Bowling Green, Kentucky. You can roll into there and, uh, go to the Corvette museum. And so sit up there and I don't know if how much, how much car enthusiasts are out there, but um, you can literally pick your brand new car up as it came off the assembly line at the Corvette museum. So they had them all lined up there and there was uh, people rolling in to pick up their new Corvette and um, a lot of different, different cool things with them for sure. So you can also see the sinkhole. Yeah, the sinkhole. So that, uh, that was a quite an amazing thing. And, and, Kentucky, which doesn't normally happen um, as much as it does in Florida. They had a sinkhole and a bunch of cars fell in a hole and uh, they uh, made a, made, made an exhibit out of it. So it's actually, actually pretty cool. Um, But uh, what else? I mean, what about trucks? I mean, God, there's a lot of good looking trucks. I mean, I know in uh, going back to my era again, Dodge came out with one called the little red wagon, which is a pretty cool truck and had, chrome pipes and stuff on it uh, you know we nowadays you have the the ram trx you have the ford raptor you have all that stuff but i'm going to go back to the one that kind of started all of that because i don't think it was until the mid 90s where they started really thinking about building a performance truck um from the factory now a lot of people did it aftermarket and stuff like that but chevy and i think it was 1990 uh started the uh chevy ss 454 which was a standard cab short bed four, 454 cubic inch uh, pickup truck that was kind of built as a race type of truck um and everything so i think that kind of launched a lot of this i had one of those i, I thought you did had a, had a black one yeah um it was a pretty fast truck but yeah they did start putting some big engines in the in the trucks and stuff um, as trucks changed i mean trucks were um you know used for farmers and workers and stuff like that. Now trucks have changed into the modern. I remember being in England a few years ago and uh, I saw no pickup trucks around in London and stuff. And I asked a uh, Uber driver, whatever we were in, I said, um, why don't you guys have any trucks? I mean, cause in America, I mean, what 50% probably, probably more on the road or trucks and SUVs. And he looked at me, he says, we don't drive trucks because we're not farmers. And I thought, well, that's kind of a mean comment, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was just a fact that, uh, you know, as, as, uh, and when I was, that was a few years back, but they, they still had, they called them Toyota Hiluxes, which were what we call a Tacoma now. Um, a lot of different ones with that, but yeah, I think there's a lot of cool different things. I mean, I think all manufacturers have done a better job, uh, changing up the models and making them look cooler and better. We went through a pretty plain stage for a while. For probably 15, 20 years, um, and it seems uh, 
you know, people are doing modern things with headlights and taillights and, and uh, you know, just different, you know, visions of, you know, the way the car looks and the way the car comes at you. They do some really cool things in, in average average daily drivers. I keep so. waiting for Dodge. Dodge has put a Hellcat engine, so a 707-horsepower V8 engine, and everything other than a minivan. I keep waiting for the minivan to come out. Yeah. You're probably going to wait a little while. Yeah. And then you can drive a minivan instead of your uh, hybrid. It gets 40-some miles a gallon. You can drive one that gets 10. Yeah. My wife will love me when we get a 10-mile-per-gallon, 707-horsepower uh, Dodge Caravan. I, I'm, I'm going to, ladies and gentlemen out there, I'm going to bet money on it, but that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so, anyhow, that's a little bit about uh, some of the good-looking cars. But think about for yourself, what what's attractive to a car? Uh what do you like about the looks of it? You know, um, I, I'll share with you one last piece. My wife bought a new uh, SUV a year or so ago, and she talked about she didn't overly like the front grill of it, and but she loved the interior. And I said, you know, as you drive this vehicle and you own this vehicle for whatever time we own it, where are you going to spend 99% of your time? She said, well, in behind the steering wheel. I said, well, isn't that the most important thing other than the outside look if you didn't like the big grill that a lot of cars have? And she said, well, that's true. So she ended up buying that uh, that SUV because uh, she loved the interior. So, no, I can't do that. Well, I'm telling you, but that's... Uh, you know you bought the right car when you walk away from it and you turn around and you look back at it when it's in the parking lot. <laughs> so you like a car that looks sexy when you yeah. walk away from it. So, Okay. Uh, just looking to buy my first car this summer. You guys got any tips? So if we listen to what the caller was asking about looking for their first car, um, you know, and I guess we didn't really pin down whether this is, you know, first car, just got your license, maybe first car driver, you know, cause, uh, that's one thing that has changed. Most everybody was really, really excited and got licenses, you know, the minute, the second that you could go get a license, not everybody's that way. So I see. You know, I know my youngest son uh, didn't get a new, you know, didn't get right on that. Wasn't that important to him and stuff. But anyhow, uh, callers looking for, you know, things to look for in a in a first car. So I'll let Tony share with you a couple pieces with this. Um, and uh, let's just talk this out a little bit. The biggest thing I think would be to look at a vehicle history report, whether that's a Carfax, whether that's a dealer report, whatever that is, make sure the vehicle hasn't been totaled, make sure it's got a clean title, make sure all those small intangibles are in proper documentation beforehand. To me, the second thing would be try to figure out if the vehicle has any service records or service history. Um, a lot of times if you're buying a vehicle from a dealership that's a used vehicle, it could have gone through an auction or something like that. So there's going to be little to no records of service history of the vehicle. Um, you know, let's volley this back, back and forth. So you, you talked about a couple of things and I'll throw out a, uh, a thought or two and let's just throw several things, but new, new buyer. Um, I think what Tony talked about looking for service records. Um, and I'll tell you, it seems like what we see coming to our shops, we don't see, um, a lot of service records other than uh, a car fax or something yep. being able to to uh, show much on on yours. So tell everybody a little bit about what Carfax is and 
how that helps you kind of look at history of a car. So Carfax um, does a couple things, uh, and I touched on that point at, at the beginning of that. So Carfax will tell you if there's any major wrecks any wrecks that have been turned into the insurance it will not tell you if the vehicle has been damaged and not turned into insurance or not had a police report so a vehicle could have been wrecked hit a deer something like that not gotten a police report had major damage and still gotten repaired if somebody paid cash out of pocket for it but if it got turned into insurance it's going to get reported to carfax there are shops across the country that also report service history to Carfax um, to where our POS system or our point of sale systems are linked to Carfax to where Carfax can actually download the service history of that vehicle based off that VIN number um, to where you know what the service history of that vehicle is. But not every shop, if you, not every shop sends not that information. Not every shop does that. So you may go pull a Carfax, but if they don't report service information to them, you'd have no idea what was done. Correct. Correct. So I think, uh, and that's a good, good point with that. So although that's a good tool, um, I, I would question how many percent of shops actually report that stuff. And like Tony said, if it's an insurance claim or a police report, yes, it's going to be. But if it's just general maintenance, a lot of those that I've looked at just don't have a lot of that information on them. Well, and I think the thing with this is there's no one size fits all guide to buying your first car. So there's a bunch of different things that you need to pull a couple things from to be able to do it. The other thing being is if you can't obtain any of this information, if you can't obtain the history record of the vehicle, if you can't obtain whether the vehicle has been in any major wrecks or anything, then and, and I, re I recommend this regardless if you can obtain or can't obtain that stuff. Um, but I would recommend that you take it to a third party, uh, i.e. another shop, not the dealership that's selling you the car. Take it to a third party, another shop, and have the car have a safety inspection or what's called a used car safety inspection performed on you it. You stole my volley thing. That was the subject I was going to talk about. So, but I'll take it from here. Um, <laughs> um Tony's right about that. Um, most shops don't overly advertise that. I know ours doesn't do a really good job sometimes advertise that, but we will do a pre-purchase inspection for you on, on an automobile. So take it to a third party because if you go to your local mechanic, wherever you are in your city or town, he's going to, he or she is going to be looking out for you um, and your needs and wants and desires, not so much just to sell you a car. So go get an honest opinion on what kind of shape that car is from your local trusted uh, shop and technician. Um, and that, that gives you a good idea. And two things can come out of that. You can find out that the car is really pretty good shape and only needs a, a minor couple things. Maybe the dealer will fix it for you, or maybe they'll discount the price so you can fix it at your local garage. Or number two, you may find a car that's not really great and has a lot of issues and it's much better to head that off uh in advance and stuff so, so I would, many times we hear this question though and i'll let you answer this but the car that i'm looking at buying the dealership's already performed a 170 point inspection on it why do i need to go take it for another inspection uh, yeah this is a touchy subject but we'll 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 tread on it delicately um some of the some of the um inspections performed aren't as detailed maybe as your local mechanic would take care of that car for you. Um, so if you think about this, if a dealer trades in a car and has it for, uh, has it for sale, 
um, and it needs a bunch of work, every, every dollar they put in it takes away from profit. So if they have to go put a lot of things, so a lot of times maybe they'll do the minimal work on it um, and not fix a lot of different things on that. Whereas maybe you like to really service a car and make sure it's got great brakes and suspension and tune up and all that type of stuff. So sometimes those, I'm not saying always, but sometimes those inspections aren't as detailed as you'll probably get from your local um, shop service center, somebody that you know and trust. That's again, looking out for your benefits. I always tell um, our customers this, I'm working for you. Uh, I'm inspecting the car for you. And we're going to point out the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, and we'll, you know, help you decide that way. I'm not, I have no interest in selling you a car. So if you go to an independent service center like we run and that are thousands and thousands across the United States, they're really looking out for your best interests um, for that, not trying to sell you a different car. So, uh, so I would also, I would caution too, Tony, I think a piece on, on this, somebody buying a first car is, Buy something somewhat practical. Talk about some of the cars that maybe have come into our shop that somebody, you know, maybe you're a 16-year-old that got a two or $3,000 and you bought a, a really old BMW because it's cool. We just we're talking about cool cars. But let's talk about that a little bit. I was talking to one of the young guys that work for us about this the other day. So, because um, <laughs> he has a tendency to lower everything to the point where you can't drive over a penny. So... And that's a good so, point. Shout out Dalton. Um, but, uh, you know, the problem is, is a lot of times when we're young, like I was talking about in, in, uh, uh, a couple episodes ago uh, with our first car we want to customize stuff we want stuff to look cool we want it to sound cool we want it to to appeal to us and stuff there is a huge difference between what is called a daily driver and what is called not your daily driver i.e your custom car a lot of guys get really confused and girls between making their daily driver too custom to where it can't go over a speed bump or railroad track or so on and so forth so um, an older BMW like that is probably a good car if you really have a passion for it and you have a disposable income because that car is going to need a little bit more TLC and going to cost you more to repair in a lot of areas than what, let's say, uh, what's a modern good front wheel drive car, a Toyota Camry. Yeah. Camry, um, Honda Accord. Uh, yeah. So, so that BMW, the cost of repair is going to be greater. Number one, it's going to require a special type of repair. Number two, and number three, a lot of times once you become an enthusiast, that car is going to, you know, have a little bit more customizable options and stuff like that, that could cause you to do stuff to it that may not be recommended for your daily driving first car. That's a good point. So if you, like Tony's talking about, if you're going to get into that, one of that, uh, types of cars, make sure that you have the budget to allow that because there are cars, you know, that are more expensive to repair than a, than a general, um, you know, Toyota, Honda, you know, Chevy Ford, a lot of those things. And you got some great looking European cars, but as they get older, they can be pretty costly. So if you're on a budget, which is what the caller was asking about, you know, respectfully look for something that's practical Look for something that's dependable, reliable. 
Uh, past service records are awesome. If you knew if you're in the northern climate, all-wheel drive, front-wheel drive should be factored into your decision heavily versus a rear-wheel drive car because of snow and ice and, and stuff along those lines. Great, too. great point. We were talking about that. So um, I want, you know, maybe the parents and the others that are out there listening to this also, we take our least experienced driver that's 16, 17, 18 years old, and we put them in the junkiest car in our fleet. Well, we go drive the nice new car with airbags and anti-lock brakes and new tires and all that stuff. So, you know, you're taking your rookie driver and putting him in, you know, the car that handles not the best as we were talking in other episodes also. So, you know, really factor that in, but hopefully you all have uh, service centers in your area that you can rely on that can give you good, honest opinions about that car so you can make some right decisions. Oh, Mike and Tony back with you uh, from the glove box, driving the discussion. Uh, that's right. a mouthful. I know it is. That's a, had a really. That's why I was asking our uh, yeah. our producer, our esteemed colleague, Brody. yeah, our esteemed uh, producer that helps us through these things and stuff. So I don't know. These are in the title of producer yet. He's yeah. We no. He's he's producer. We're we're giving him a big <laughs> we're giving him a big title. Okay. Uh, but driving the discussion. Big words for a small glove box that we're in right now. It is. That's very true. So, you know, the subject we talked about, and we always try to kick around some different one, is brakes, brake jobs, brake pads, brake calipers, brake rotors. You drive down the road um, and you see all sorts of pricing for these jobs. I mean, you can buy these jobs for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of difference. Probably like you could buy a couch for $500 or $5,000. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's chat out a little bit because, uh, obviously we want cars that stop and stop efficiently and don't allow us to run into things. That's Speed what, doesn't kill you. It's a sudden stop. That kills you. Exactly right. So that's the, that's the thing that hurts the most. So, so, uh, you know, and, you know, let's talk about those things. Let's talk about, you know, how long the average brake should last and stuff and, you know, driving habits and all that. But. Open it up a little bit about uh, about this subject called brakes, which everybody that's owned a car has probably uh, made this purchase over the years. Well, I think the thing that that is happening more and more now is newer cars. That first brake job is way out there. Meaning, used to be when you had your first brake job, maybe you had your brakes done around thirty, forty, maybe fifty thousand miles at most. In a lot of cases on a brand new vehicle, we're seeing that first brake job happen in the seventy to eighty thousand mile range, which is great under the pretense of a couple of things. That pretense is your first brake job is going to last seventy to eighty thousand miles, which is wonderful. Don't expect your second brake job to last that long. Yep. the The reason being is things like calipers, things like wheel cylinders, things like master cylinders, all the other portion of a brake job um, that is not your pads and rotors have age on them then and have 80,000 miles on them. So while you're going in and you're replacing your pads and rotors, which is the friction material of your brake system, you're not replacing anything of the hydraulic side of your brake system. I think a lot of people get really confused between a brake system 
having two different uh, systems really that operate it. Those two systems being there's a mechanical system with your pads and rotors and friction uh, uh, pieces. Uh, some cars still have brake shoes and brake drums. Um, and the second part of that system is the hydraulic side. So the master cylinder that moves all the brake fluid out to the brake calipers that actually squeezes the brake pads and operates those or the wheel cylinders that pushes the shoes out to make your vehicle actually stop. There's actually three. There's actually a third section of that. There is. What is it? Well, the third section is the anti-lock brake side of it, yep. which is uh, strictly controlled electronically and stuff. So, so and I that, think, and that kind of includes your power brake booster and some of that type of stuff too. That's all vacuum operated, and in a lot of cases, still at this point in time, or hydro boost uh, in a lot of cars now. So, well, and I think as Tony's shared with that, I mean, brake systems have changed immensely over the years. I mean, there was a there was a phase where you would. Um, have what we call disc brakes on the front and drums on the back, and you would replace those front brakes two or three or four times to every one of the rear. Now modern cars have figured out how to balance the brake braking, uh, like a couple episodes we talked about the su suspension and stuff. But modern cars are uh, a much better balance in braking, so they understand how to uh, get a car to stop quicker and more efficiently. be another component in the car that controlled the balance of the brakes. What was that called? It's old school. It's an ASC test question. A uh, proportioning valve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hold. Listen, we're not trying to be technical on this one. This is a this is a common folk conversation, but uh, but that is true. Um, but think about a brake caliper. You take your foot and put it on the brake, and I'm I'm staring at a water bottle in front of me. So if I want to pick up that water bottle, I reach my hand over, I squeeze my hand together, and I pick up that bottle. That's that's when you're applying the brakes. When you put your take your foot off your brake, it would be like your hand releasing and setting the bottle back down. So there's components in there. So when we do brake jobs in professional shops, that applying and releasing of your hand or the caliper, that's what does that. It squeezes that brake pad against the rotor is what stops the car. You think that you let your foot off the brake uh, pedal that the brakes have released but things get gummed up and, you know, age and time, like Tony talked about and weather and all that, it doesn't release quite a bit. So there's much more than just uh, going down to your local parts store and grabbing a set of brake pads and slapping them on your car. Um, so you want to explain a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of people are starting to get really irritated with vehicle manufacturers because, according to the general consumer, the vehicle manufacturer is making the vehicle to where you cannot service it yourself. While that in part is true, um, I think they're I think they're doing stuff to try to make the modern automobile automobile more efficient. Um, meaning the introduction of computer systems, introduction of computer-controlled braking systems, that type of stuff. So this is really spun to, um, you're not going to be able to do your own brake job in your driveway anymore unless you have some type of scanning equipment or a high-end scan tool to be able to actually retract the brake calipers. So when I first learned how to do a brake job in 1997, uh, 98, when I was 9 or 10 years old and learning in the back of the shop, um, we used to take a 2x4, put it in your brake caliper, and then squeeze your brake caliper with what's called a C-clamp to be able to get your piston retract. 
you don't do that anymore. Now you go to the scanner, you press a couple buttons and the caliper spins back in real fast. And now you can put your new brake pads in because what happens is when your brake pads wear down, the pads start out at 10, 11, 12 millimeters of thickness. So let's call it half an inch, um, quarter of an inch, somewhere in there. And as they wear down, that piston has to travel out further and further and further to be able to make the brake pads actually squeeze against the brake rotor. So when you go to replace your brakes, you have to push the piston all the way back basically to new. Well, a couple things are happening when you do that. Number one, the piston actually has to move back. Um, Boy, this is getting really technical. I'm, I'm getting bored even. So, <laughs> so um, okay, we're moving the piston back. You're moving the piston back, so which is moving brake fluid back. Um, one thing that people don't really realize is brake fluid is recommended to be flushed about every 20, 30, uh, some cars now up to 36,000 miles, some cars as low as 12,000 miles. The reason being is when you push that piston back, you're actually moving brake fluid out of the, out of the caliper that, that, uh, has been sitting there for a long time because brake fluid is the only system on your car that does not really make a complete circle. So meaning all the brake fluid goes out to the wheel and doesn't come back every single time. So that gums the caliper up and, and by gumming the caliper up and not flushing your brake fluid can eventually cost you hundreds, if not thousands of more dollars, depending on your vehicle to be able to replace those calipers. Okay. That's a, that's a good point. I think, you know, again, trying to use an analogy, this came to me, but when you apply your brake pedal, you push your foot on the brakes to slow it almost like a squirt gun that, that squirts this fluid, you know, that makes the brakes apply and release. And then uh, different than a squirt gun, you're able to retract that back in. So, um, you know, that's kind of, kind of what goes on, but I can, I can share this with you. I mean, modern cars, like Tony said, do have brakes that last a lot, lot longer. There are six or seven or eight different um, qualities of brake pads and rotors uh, for most cars. So just like if you go to the grocery store and go to the green bean aisle, you can buy green beans in probably 10 different price ranges and, you know, generic and premium and frozen and yada, yada, yada. Brake pads are the same way. So there's the, the common thing to share with our consumers out there is no two brake jobs are alike. So we would always suggest that you go to a good quality, reputable, you know, uh, shop that has a long warranty that does a full service brake job um, that servicing because these things are really important. I mean, you think of uh, driving down the road and, and you're maybe not paying attention, your you know, uh, phone rings or a text pops in and you take your eyes off and then you see traffic stopping in front of you and you panic stop. That's the difference between good brakes and great brakes. Um, if you go to your shop and they say you have, you still have 30% remaining on those brakes. You do, and they will last another X amount of thousand miles, but that car definitely will not stop as quick as a Correct. car with uh, new brakes. So depending on how you like to drive and, and what your, you know, safety factor is, you know, sometimes it's best not to wait till they're completely worn out because you don't get the best brake. Same way with a tire. Um, if you like traction, you don't wait till it's completely bald before you replace it. So, um, so, you know, I would suggest this, Tony, uh, and I think we like to find this out from our consumers. How do you like to service a car? How safe do you want to be? Because 
everybody has uh, you know different opinions. But that's a little bit on brake service. Um, make sure to talk to your local shops, uh, you know, to get the, the the best value and get good brake jobs so your car stop and y'all are safe out on the road. And make sure to have your brakes inspected before you just deal with a price over the phone on them. Oh, that's a good point too. We would always always suggest go to a shop. Most shops will do a free preliminary inspection uh, versus calling around and pricing. It's just not very accurate. Um, and have them really look at your car because as they cars come into our shops, usually no two brake jobs are alike. Nope. Hey, this is uh, father and son team Mike and Tony Tadich. Uh, just want to thank you for hanging out with us again today. So, you got anything to wrap up, Tony? It's uh, uh, shutting the glove box time. So. We'll see you next time on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Make sure you're here for our next one. Have a question for Mike and Tony? Call it in at 888-201-0858. This podcast is brought to you by TMT Automotive and Momentum Drives Marketing.